Because we haven't started chapter one. By my count, we got a minute or two, so we uh Well, the, uh, we had other people sponsor the Shrove Tuesday dinner in previous years, and they weren't going to do it. We were sitting in the staff meeting, and, well, maybe what are we going to do? I said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll cook, and Father Aids, I'll cook. Okay, so it just seemed like a – I, I think it's something we'll continue just because the other thing about it is, you know, we're always around Shrove Tuesday, and you ran about, like, four hours of, of shifts of people eating typically. Why not, you know, cook a little something? So it, it all worked out fine, but it was – it was like we were going to do that. I, I, you know, in my fraternity, I was breakfast cook, so I can. I mean, pancakes are not. This is not advanced <laughs> chef work. <laughs> you know, uh, the the um, we didn't do we didn't actually bring the bacon out, which uh, I'm kind of meticulous about my bacon. I like it. The, the, to me, the perfect bacon is is crispy throughout but not breakable. It's got to be. It's like this always beef jerky consistent, you know, you have to really, so I'm almost too meticulous to like crank it out. That's the problem, like if you go to a buffet line, the problem with bacon is always, someone just hurried and done it. They didn't spend the time to, you know, you really got to. So. Anyway, it was a nice idea. Yeah. It was a nice gesture. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah, it was, it was, it was fun. We had a good time with it. I like to see the top brass. You know what it reminded me of was Washington. Yeah. You know, it kind of begins, you know, uh, yeah. Lent, I think. You know, the clergy serve that way, and then towards the week, I mean. All right, we're at 1030. Let's begin. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. So we, we gave some introduction on Revelation last week. Um, uh, for those new to us, we're... Um, going to take our time doing doing some significant cross-referencing so we can set table appropriately for understanding what Revelation is. If you don't now get the emails from for Thursday Bible study, uh, email Rachel at office at St. Matthew's Newport and say, put me on the Thursday Bible study list because I will be sending out things in advance to look at uh, for, for, the, uh, for this. Um, so what we um, discussed last week is um, that the the perspective I'm going to uh, I'm, I'm I'm teaching, which I think I actually think the is increasingly self-evident in the writing itself when you look at it on the face of it is that at least in some um, primary way not dismissing other applications and longer-term applications at least in a primary way revelation deals with the um, destruction of the Jerusalem temple 
in AD 70, um, which uh, was a consequence of, you know, rejection of the Messiah. Last week we looked at the um, at the uh, the thing the, the writing in Matthew and it's also in Luke and Mark called the Olivet Discourse, which in many ways parallels Revelation thematically, and we looked at uh, and we looked at certain things we'll, we'll come to again uh, in in our going through the, the verses here. Um, not least of which are Jesus' statement that this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. And then um, the, 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 the second and usually most troubling verse for people in Revelation is uh, that they'll see the Son of Man coming with the clouds and power and great glory. And the... Um, the understanding that this that this is a prophetic reference to Daniel chapter seven, and not a reference to the coming of Jesus at the end of time. Not um, not only that, it, it, it it's it's prophetic language. The Son of Man coming on the clouds is is biblical language for God coming in judgment, and it doesn't require. Jesus actually standing on a cumulus nimbus suspended a thousand feet in the air, but it's an image of him as judge. You'll see this, and we'll look at some passages today, so that once we understand that the Son of Man coming with the clouds, and, and we mentioned also last week, if you missed, that Jesus says a very interesting thing, in that passage about the Son of Man coming with the clouds, he says, um, you looking, paying special attention to the pronouns in the Olivet Discourse when he's talking to his disciples, that they will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds. They, not the disciples, whoever they are. But when he's being tried by the Sanhedrin uh, and they ask him if he's the Messiah, he says, yeah, you've said so, and you will see the Son of Man coming with clouds. And that connection is another piece of, of evidence that suggests that this image of judgment is something to happen within a generation of, of Jesus' death, and, and, it's, and it has arrived with Jerusalem. So... We are, we are in Revelation chapter 1. We haven't even read a verse yet. <laughs> we just, all we did was background last week. We looked at the Olivet Discourse uh, mostly. And um, so let's, and I, I don't expect us to get very far today because I told you all these things. Now, the other thing I want to give from a, an essential background on Revelation, and without this understanding, I don't care what you think it means, you, you'll get it wrong if you don't understand this, that Revelation is a document about worship. All of its images are deeply embedded in the Old Testament temple, priesthood. And, and if we don't understand that, um, we're going to miss 
So this, even the whole framework of revelation takes place as essentially worship. We're going to see by the time we get to chapters 4 and 5, the 4 and 20 elders before the throne casting down their crowns where we get M266 from. So what it's really expressing is how Christ and the church fulfill all of the imagery, the symbols of the Old Testament temple, and how the new worship of God is taking place, and how God enacts his judgments in response to the prayers of his people. And we'll have more chance to talk about that. So it's very much, it's a document that is very much caught up in the covenant language, the covenant that God has made with Israel in the Old Testament and has been renewed, a new covenant in Christ. This is a covenant document centered in the worship of Israel, the fulfilled worship of Israel expressed in the church, but deeply connected symbolically to the Old Covenant worship. Okay. So let's just jump in and read some verses, and we're going to jump around some, so you need a Bible and you need your fingers to be able to move. So, chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, sometimes it's called the revelation of St. John, but it's the revelation of Jesus Christ to St. John, so it'd be more, it's not really, that's how we should understand it. The word revelation we should understand as it is other places in the New Testament's word from which we get our word apocalypse. So that's why it's called the apocalypse, the revelation, because that's the Greek word. And we think of apocalyptic things as being destructive. You know, that if you say it's going to be apocalyptic, usually the image conveyed is all going to be destroyed. But it doesn't mean that, it means revealing. Because it's the revealing of Jesus Christ. And what we're really going to get in Revelation is the heavenly reality, the, the true reality behind the earthly appearance of things. And so we, it's revealed to us what this really means, what this is really about, what's really happening. So, which God gave... Uh, it's interesting here now, because look at the, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. That is, the Father gave to the Son to show his servants things which must shortly take place. So, from God, the Father, to the Son, and now being revealed to his servants, in the spirit. So it's 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 the same Trinitarian framework. Now 
to, to show his servants things which must shortly take place. I want to highlight this in terms of my contention that Revelation is dealing in the first instance with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 is that shortly. And while we know that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, a thousand years is one day, sometimes words like shortly mean relatively soon, and sometimes words like this generation shall not pass away to all these things take place mean, well, this generation to whom I'm talking. <clears throat> and a lot of, um, you, we get in a lot of uh, <clears throat> fanciful things when we try to ignore sometimes the plain sense of it. So which must shortly take place. And he sent, and here's a key word, signified it. So this revelation is going to be through signs, which, to take us back to John's gospel, remember John's gospel was the signs gospel, this beginning of signs, always signs, to reveal the signs, reveal Jesus. If you understand the sign, you understand who Jesus is. <clears throat> um, so this is, these are signs. They're, they're a little more complex than turning water into wine and things like that that we had in John's Gospel. But he's signifying it. He's conveying it through signs. And the, 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 the signifying the signs, therefore, like parables, um, have a twofold way that they operate. They operate to reveal truth to those who, to whom it is given to know, and to conceal truth from those who don't have eyes to see and ears to hear. And this is being given to his servants. It's not a, a full explanation to the entire world of everything God's about to do. He sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. God, Father, appealing to Jesus' will, sending it by an angel to John in symbols, and, and, and John's going to then be the, the, the one who writes down the, the apocalypse or the revelation. Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, who all things that he saw which is to say that John is going to be a faithful witness. And that's always the burden of the Bible for those to whom something is given, to be a faithful witness, custodian of that which you receive. That Jesus, the faithful, Jesus, we call the faithful witness because he has faithfully told us about God the Father. Uh, then he commits it to disciples like John and they're faithful when they faithfully communicate what they've received. And that's, in a sense, like apostolic ministry, as we call it down through the ages, the burden of apostolic ministry is to faithfully convey the authentic revelation and not to depart from it. Unfaithfulness, then, would be to not bear faithful witness. It seems like John, all of his books, that he 
It's like, um, well, it, you get this this idea of faithful witness in, um, it's self-evident, but it's worthy of meditation, the passion narrative where Jesus is on trial for being who he is. And he says, well, are you the son of God? Well, yeah, I mean, what what else can I, you know, yes, this is what I, this is what I am. And, you know, so the faithful says, yes, this is what it is. The main temptation to unfaithfulness in witness is that the faithful witness is not always popular. People don't always want to hear exactly what God would have to say. And standing up for Jesus as the Son of God and, and all he is and all that implies, we'd rather kind of, you know, hush that down, make a little more generic message about, you know, peace and love. <laughs> I don't mean there's not peace and love in the message of Jesus, but I just mean that's, I think that's the main, that's the main temptation. Now, verse 3, and this is an interesting thing about Revelation. Um, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written, for the time is near. Again. Yeah. <laughs> the drumbeat of, of chronology here. Um, but what's interesting about this blessed is he who reads is that um, apropos of John, who loves the number seven, there are in Revelation seven beatitudes just like this. Um, I happen to have written them down, so I'll read them for you. We'll come to them in our due time. But this is the first beatus when blessed is he who reads and those who hear. And incidentally, he who reads and those who hear presumes a congregational reading. So somebody is going to be in the reading this to the congregation. And so if they hear and then receive it and, and listen, uh, there'll be, they'll be a blessing and keep the things that are written. Uh, the second one is Revelation 14.11. Hear the voice from heaven saying, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. They may rest in their labors. Then Revelation 16.15. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garment, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Revelation 19.9 Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 26 Blessed and holy is he who has his part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. Revelation 22.7 Behold, I am coming quickly Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And then Revelation 22, 14. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to eat, have the right to the tree of life, and may enter through the gates into the city. So we'll cover those, and I'm happy to share. May I share this with you by email. So seven 
seven blessings in Revelation. So, while we believe this is a first century document, it has ongoing prophetic significance. So, if we hear what he's saying and respond to the message that's being signified and its application to us now, we'll inherit it, we'll, we'll, we'll be blessed. So, verse 4. And, and this is kind of a, a letter form now. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. This is a standard letter introduction here. Grace and peace to you. And But, but the, the greeting is here... Um, not directly from John, but from God. Um, and where does this sense of um, God who is and was and is to come, where biblically in the Old Testament does that come from? So where, where's the, yeah, I mean, so there's implication clearly in the beginning God. Um where does God most clearly reveal himself by his name to Israel? Moses. Um, Moses. And what is his name? I am that I am, which is Yahweh. It used to be Jehovah. They changed the transliteration of it. And I am, I am being, suggests that I was. And, and, and the, the threefold um, sense of this is is um, the unchanging nature of God, God's past activity with his covenant people, you know, his faithfulness now, and then and, and who is to come um, is is the, the faithfulness of his promises that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. Um <coughs> The seven churches in Asia, and we're going to get when we get to chapters two and three that there are, are actually seven churches, but seven has a, a continuing symbolic meaning in John. Uh, we've had it, you know, in, in John's gospel, there's seven I am statements. Um, there were, you know, and seven is biblically, again, this is not something that John made up. Uh, what, what's like the, the first origin of, of seven in the Bible? Huh? Seven days. So seven days of creation. God, you know, so seven is our first seven that suggests something in in seven is like a completeness. That 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 so seven is is um and and what it's going to tell us here is that I think that. In the messages to the specific seven churches, there are certainly messages to those churches, but there's also a message uh, to the whole church that that there's a timeless message. When we get to those those things that he says to the churches, there are thematic applications that apply always to churches in different settings. So it's a it's both specific 
and general. In a, in a certain way, too, this is part of the mystery of, 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 of our understanding of Christian time, going back to Genesis, where the week is seven days, and, uh, and, and the week, even now for us, as it's been revealed in Christ, and one of the things we're going to find out about Revelation is that John is receiving this revelation on the Lord's Day, which is the first day of the week, which is the day the church gathers for the Eucharist. Um, and the sense of Christian time is the first day is the beginning of time. And each week, time begins again on the first day and goes through a week and comes back <clears throat> to the eighth day, which is another first day, but time begins in Christ for the, for the, in the church clearest sense where the church begins her time in Christ, in the Eucharist, and then it comes back at the end to Christ. And so the Lord's Day also symbolizes the day of the Lord. <clears throat> and, and, and this is how Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending. And that's our, only, our own sense of the life of prayer. We begin our day in prayer, we end our day in prayer. We begin in Christ, we end in Christ. And that's, but, but the seven-day week symbolizes that. It's also a specific week, but it also encapsulates the whole of time. That's part of the mystery. Um, the seven spirits who are before the throne. Um, do we know anywhere, like, just think about in even just a prayer book tradition of sacraments, anywhere we get seven in spirit put together? So I emailed you a verse. I didn't expect you necessarily. I didn't do it until yesterday. It's probably a lot of time to study. But Isaiah 11, 2, um, where the spirit of the Lord is upon me, and, and in the Septuagint version, the, the enumerated gifts of the Spirit are seven. And that comes over into our prayer book confirmation tradition, where the bishop prays over those being confirmed, um, um, that, 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 that the, the spirit of wisdom and counsel and might, and there's, that those are limited out. So the idea that, that the Spirit has a sevenfold characteristic to it is rooted in the Old Testament and the place that is most clearly connected to Revelation is in the um, the candlesticks in the temple, which when you go back, I sent that verse, I think it was Exodus, I didn't write it down here, I emailed it, but didn't write it down, Exodus 37, uh, something, where it talked about the sevenfold candlesticks. So you have seven lamps burning before the throne in the temple. And so all I want us to see is John is just living in the temple imagery here, and all this revelation is, it might be drawing that out, giving more nuance to it, but he's not seeing a new thing. He's seeing the clearer exposition of temple worship. When they were hearing, when they were hearing 
certainly the early Jewish believers coming out of, of, of uh, now you want to, I mean, we should be, um, clear about some, a couple of things. One is that, um, most of the diaspora Jews throughout the Roman Empire worshipped mostly in a local synagogue, and how often they were supposed to go for the the major feast days. How many of that grew up to make that pilgrimage? So, but that answer question, yes, they were deeply, they were all um, well aware of of the worship in the temple. They'd all been there. They'd seen it. Um, they'd all. Most of the er very early believers had, you know, been there for the Passover and, and Yom Kippur, and so when the image brought out, and this is, for example, in the in the uh, Epistle to the Hebrews, uh, where the author describes how Christ fulfills these Day of Atonement rituals. That, yeah, that would have hearkened to a lot to a lot of things, and so we we are a little bit of of of, of in, impoverished by not having those right there. Um, but my main point here is is that this imagery, the seven, so the seven spirits before the throne are yeah, the seven candlesticks that are always in the temple, always burning. That's what they would have thought about. That represent the spirit of God always, and therefore, since the temple on earth was understood to be a mirror image of the true temple, what it means is John is seeing, oh, so this is what's always before God. Somehow, the Holy Spirit in sevenfold manifestation, which means, again, that this is paradox, and just so. What I, I hope that you can, we can go through Revelation and you can be a contemplative and not a dogmatist. Um, Ch Chesterton had a line where he contrasted uh, uh, what he called the, the poet and what he called the logician. He says, um, the poet tries to get his head into the heavens. And what we're doing here is we're getting a glimpse Oh, yeah, I see that. You don't see all of that. It's like like the, the paradox at the end of the liturgy, the peace of God, which passes all understanding. You you know the peace of God, but you don't you don't contain it. You 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 experience this thing that you could never really grasp. So here we must be contemplative. And Chesterton said the poet tries to get his head into the heavens. And the logician tries to get the heavens into his head, and his head splits. So when you enter this writing called Revelation, and you try to develop all kinds of logical propositions, you're going to go crazy. It, they're symbols that have rootedness. It, it doesn't mean anything is true. No, they're, they're, this is very much an orthodox book, very Trinitarian one transcendent God revealed particularly in Jesus Christ, but but there's a lot about that that is just, so we want to be contemplatives here. But, okay. It's coming up to me too, though, that we are, like, we are the symbols now of the Holy Spirit. And, like, on India and stuff, and I'm not saying this for anyone, like, 
have seen like seven centers in our body. And Mary Magdalene had seven demons cast out of her. So as you're saying this, I, I wrote the menorah, but I was just seeing ourselves. And well, well, I, I, I mean, to, to Cheryl's point here, um, and it's a good augmentation what I said about the temple that um, John in his gospel and now clearly means to want to see the church as the fulfillment of the temple. And God now dwells in his people and with his people in a way that he used to live in a building. So this is not simply a separate, and this is one of the, this is something we always have to get our, our, our minds around, and, and there's sometimes a tension in this in, in the church, because we talk about, well, we're going to build the church, and we think, oh, we're going to have a building campaign, we're going to build structures. But the building um, houses the church, technically. And when you, but apart from the living body of Christ, it could just be a room, a museum, like Mary and I's far about some English churches that, to me, feel less alive, living, breathing with the Holy Spirit and more, you know, a shrine to what they used to do years ago. And I don't mean that's everywhere present, so don't throw something at me, Marion. Don't, don't. You can hit me later. Uh, but, but that happens here, too. It's not just England. It's every, it's just England has a lot of history. <laughs> but, but, uh, and, and things to be renewed. But the point is, the church is the people of God in whom God dwells. And what the, um, the building does and why buildings are, are significant because we're, you know, there's a sacramental reality is they orient us towards the truth. So that, that's why our churches are constructed a certain way. Our churches are constructed to house the fulfilled temple worship. So, you know, we, um, one of the clear things you get, for example, historically in churches, is that whereas in the Old Testament there was a veil, a curtain, that kept, you know, where people were from the Holy of Holies, now because the veil of the temple was torn in two, on Good Friday, and through Christ's death and resurrection and ascension, the way to God is open. We don't have a big curtain separated. We can see into the Holy of Holies when we come. And a lot of our liturgy, well, our liturgy is about how we experience again the way that God and man are united in Christ with the Spirit. It's all just experienced again and growing into this reality of worship. But Cheryl's right. It's the people. And we're going to get that um, as, we, as, we, as, we, as we come on, that there's not really a – there's um, structural imagery in Revelation, but it goes back and forth with – with the image of the, of the people of God as the true temple. So I, I think that's absolutely right. So we're interacting, we're interacting with, with heaven and earth.
Well, and more particularly, what Revelation is really going to show us is what we're interacting with. Because John is, is going to really, this whole thing is going to be drawn out in terms of the liturgical assembly of the church and his understanding of it. Matter of fact, you could you, you could really see the, 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 the first five chapters really as kind of a, just a, a, a portrayal of worship. It's got a, 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 you will see almost a clear pattern even of word and sacrament. And you'll see a transition in chapter four uh, where, where, where the angel tells John, come up here that has at least some correspondence to lift up your hearts. Come up here and see with angels and archangels and corresponds with the, with the very sanctus that comes up in Revelation chapter 4. So this is, this is a, doctrine, a document of worship that shows the church as fulfilling the Old Testament worship in her, in her own being. So, well, we still have the, I mean, we still have a distinction architecturally between sanctuary and nave. And um, I would say that what's interesting about, I think what Doug is highlighting is, I mean, this tradition of, of the reality of this manifests out in a lot of different ways, in a lot of different places, a lot of different times. I would probably say that, this, that the general sense of growing distance from God, I'm not prepared to make a thesis of this, so I'm happy to have somebody, probably resulted in churches having a greater sense of food screens, things like that, where this is here and the people are here. Whereas the early church clearly, for example, St. Ignatius of Antioch, when he's describing the early Eucharist at 110, the elders around, the right here, the people in front of him. And so sometimes the emphasis is on closeness and distance. But in any event, even that said, the liturgy is about how this thing that Christ did is recalled and how he comes to us through it, and heaven, sanctuary, and earth, nave, are joined in the sacrament. And, and it's a drama about that, how, how that goes about. And different liturgies have different points of emphasis in that. Um, what you'll, um, I would say that, uh, well, we, I, you know, except for, I think, more extreme Reformation liturgy, where it's more free church, where they don't have a, a, a nave sanctuary distinction, and all the people are together. I think the emphasis there is, and this this is you can see these pendulum swings in in history between you know excessive clericalism, where the people are removed from God, 
pendulum swinging the Reformation to the renewed emphasis on the priesthood of all believers, which is a legitimate aspect of the faith. And those are things always, that always must be held in, in, in tension. And so, it, in, but, but as that carries out, there's usually no particular distinction. And then it, it, it has its own issues we could talk about. I'm not even here to criticize it, but it tends more about to be about, um, and, and also in those places, it tends to be more about then um, the imminent prophetic revelation today rather than the the ongoing liturgy of, of growth into something. And I think this is a little bit of the, of the crisis of some evangelicalism now is because it's, it's a movement about the prophetic message you respond to today, it doesn't necessarily have a language of, okay, as I'm in, how do I grow into this thing that I've responded to, and how is not every time just another time to be converted again? How do we how do we understand of growing into that which we are, and that needs the liturgical sacramental language of the church, horticultural language, which is sometimes not as present in that in in that those uh, places. So. Okay. So the seven spirits, the seven candlesticks, the sevenfold, very much rooted in the temple. Verse five. So he's, he's the, the grace uh, and peace. Um, but it, and look, notice the trinitarian nature of this. Okay, from from God who was and is and is to come. From the seven spirits, the fullness, hear that as fullness of the Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. That's a very important thing here for Revelation. Very important thing for us. Ruler over the kings of the earth. Jesus is Lord. And he's not a Lord. He's not, he's, he's, that's a hard thing sometimes. Well, how does this work out then? Well, all these bad things happen in the world. Well, um, we see his Lordship manifested continually in the judgments of God in history not least of which will be the judgment that comes on Jerusalem, where they rejected the Lord and ended up being judged by the Lord. And so nobody in human history who rejects the Lord will cease to be judged by the Lord if they do not repent. He is, that's what it says here. The ruler over the kings of the earth. That includes Vladimir Putin. It includes the guy in Ukraine. It includes he is their lord. And whatever happens, you know, this is, you know, what if you like images of this, like this is things like Dante brought out or his image of this. But the point is, whether you accept, whether, you know, I'm not advocating that that's a literal, it's a figurative way that, yes, here's what they did. 
And here was the consequence of it, because eventually you will have to, what you do has to come before the Lord. And this is a book showing that Jesus, that, that the people of God are offering worship to God, praying for God's justice. And Jesus is going to respond by enacting it. And if you think about in the Bible, especially the Psalms, there's this, you know, here, Lord, there's a plea, vindicate me. And this is, um, that's judgment is a vindication of God's people, specifically a vindication of Christ himself, and then a vindication of all who are in him and are made righteous by connection to him. That's what judgment is, and that's what happens. That's that's what this means. So he is um, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Um, so the faithful witness, and incidentally, we always should be conscious throughout this that in Greek the word is martyr. So um, because it came into English as those who died for the faith, but they're really giving witness. And Jesus faithfully proclaimed to us what God, who God is, and what he was. Now, the firstborn from the dead, and there are a few things here to, to look at. Um, first of all, um, where, where do we first encounter uh, the firstborn image in the Bible? Yes. Okay. So what, what's, what's the thing there? All of the first story. So, so, so if we go back to our Exodus story because we need to be rooted in the biblical narrative to understand this. This very much relates to the narrative of Exodus. That um, Israel is enslaved in Egypt, and um, God comes and says, you know, to Moses, says, "Let my people go." He says, "No, I'm not going to do it." After a little back and forth, um, God pronounces sentence. All your firstborn are going to die. Except, I'm going to spare the firstborn of Israel if they put blood over the doorpost, the entry to their homes, the blood of the lamb. I will then spare the firstborn of Israel because they'll sacrifice the lamb, they'll put the blood up there, and the angel of death will take the firstborn of each, but not the firstborn of Israel. So, therefore, this created an indebtedness on Israel's behalf to God that's enshrined in the Old Covenant. All the firstborn, God says to Israel, are mine. And you sacrifice the first animal, but you buy back the people. There's not going to be human sacrifice. And this, of course, is uh, anticipated uh, before that in the story of, of Abraham and Isaac. Take your, your, your son, your only son, whom you love. Go, go and, and, and God has that, okay, don't, don't do it, and I know you're willing to do it. That's a whole interesting mental picture how he goes, and 
We understand that Isaac there, the, the word is lad, so he's probably about a 12-year-old boy. It's not a little baby, so he has, he has to be willing to, 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 to have this thing done, this being done. So the firstborn, now, so he's the firstborn of Israel, the firstborn of Mary, who, whose life and death fulfills the debt of the firstborn. But he's also here, this actually says something else, he's the firstborn from the dead. And this is the gospel in a nutshell, is that the whole problem of the old covenant is that it didn't have an answer to death. So you died and you went to Sheol, which is in Greek is Hades, and then you waited. Well, hold on to that thought, um, because not exactly. Um, we'll get into that more, but uh, the point is that Easter rises. He's, he's the first one to rise from the dead and expand the horizons of humanity. And this is why baptism, you, you not, don't you know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Colossians says, we were buried with him through baptism, in which we are raised with him through faith. So when we get to, re to re later on Revelation, I'll talk about the first resurrection. Blessed is he who has the part in the first resurrection. In the larger framework of John, this clearly means that that combination of faith and baptism by which one participates in the saving work of Jesus and, and becomes dead to sin and alive to Christ. We are a resurrected community. We are alive in Christ, as St. John would say. We have eternal life. Not that we will get it someday, but that we have it now, and, that, and therefore it's a life that does not end. So he is the firstborn from the dead. We've become, we've, we are risen in him in that sense of having the gift of the spirit that raises us. And then the second resurrection that Revelation will talk about eventually is the resurrection at the end of time when the trumpet sounds and the dead will be raised incorruptible. So, uh, and, and if you remember in John's gospel in chapter Five, I believe it is, John quoted Jesus in a sense referring to both of these phenomena. Um, um, the hour uh, is coming and now is when those, when the dead will hear the voice of, this, of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Hour is coming, it's now. You hear my voice, you respond with faith, you're alive. Then he says, the hour, the, the hour is coming when all who are in the graves 
will hear the voice of the Son of Man come forth. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life, those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. That's the future judgment. So there's a current resurrection and a future completion of it. And that's our, our framework of the spiritual life is we live in Christ, we die, somehow our life in Christ continues on in a description that the New Testament talks about as being with Christ asleep in paradise. But those who are departed in Christ in that intermediate state await his return, trumpet, the resurrection, and the consummation of the new creation. Thoughts, questions? Please, the firstborn from the dead. Um, I sent some um, Colossian verses there, too, about that. Um, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And then verse 18. Uh, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. All, all that imagery is caught up in this idea of the firstborn, the covenant firstborn, Jesus fulfilling the, um, the, the debt of Israel to God by offering himself, having fulfilled the covenant. But we're going to get this image later on in chapter 5 when um, they have this sort of dramatic scene where um, he has... the. Uh, God, the image of God the Father has the scroll in his hand which is clearly the covenant document and and, and everyone's weeping because there's no one around to, to, to open the scroll and loosens its seals and then the angel says well don't weep because you know the lion of the tribe of Judah has, has, has overcome and he's worthy to open the scrolls and loosen its seals in other words he's fulfilled the covenant by his life and death and person, and now he, having fulfilled the covenant document, he now can enact the judgments of God. That's what makes him, gives him the right to judge. Incidentally, that's the image of Jesus in our stained glass window. It's, it's having taken the seven, it's the document with the seven seals. The, relation, the window we have is all mostly revelation of the truth. So what we want to pick up on the rest of verse 5 there is, so he is the faithful witness, the one who, who tells us about God accurately, the firstborn from the dead, fulfilling all the firstborn imagery of the Old Testament, but moving it forward into pioneering a whole new horizon of life. Because apart from Jesus, humanity is stuck in mortality. 
there's no way of moving beyond. What's that? You're stuck in what? In well, in in well, okay. There's something else here that maybe we should I should unpack a little bit because this also. Um, you said mortality. Yeah, but 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 part of the part of the problem that we have now with understanding about what I'm going to say is that we we're full of modern and you know sort of Greekish ideas. Hebrew life was was only understood to be embodied life. There was no sense in the Old Covenant that you would die and go to heaven, and that would be the terminal point of your existence. So that as long as there was not life in the body, there was not life in its fullness. This is why the Jewish hope was the hope and is the hope of resurrection. In order to for God to fulfill his promise to have life in the body, in the land, there must be a resurrection. And this is why we get uh, that image of um, Ezekiel chapter 37, which we'll read on at the Easter vigil, where, you know, he sees the value of dry bones. You know, their, their hope is cut off and lost. We're, we're dead. And, but there's a resurrection. So the point about leaving the Connie's question about, about, so apart from therefore resurrection, we die and we're stuck as in a disembodied, non-completed state in terms of the Jewish hope. Only in the resurrection, only with what Jesus did to, he, he so put it in the, in the sense of Jesus, so Jesus on Good Friday died and he was buried. And as we say in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into Hades. What is Hades? It's Sheol. That's where all the dead were. That's the horizon. That's the stuckness. Body in the ground, spirit in Sheol. No way to undo that. But so Jesus, on the third day, rises. His spirit united with his body. And therefore, that's the new horizon of life. The firstborn from the dead. That's what it means, not just that his spirit lives on. That's why the resurrection hope is so essential to understanding Christian faith. And it's why the further we get from the resurrection hope, the more heretical ideas creep in about salvation being completely spiritual. Yeah, well, I mean, you, 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 you get into the discussions about the, uh, uh, the, the traditional discussion about the assumption of Mary. <laughs> I, we're not going to we're not going to embrace that today. But but technically, technically, uh, for uh, yeah, that's a, that's a tradition and not a biblical statement. And so that's yes, that's the that that's that's how we understand it. But he's doing something in us now because I guess we're not dead. Like you said, you can skip the second death. There's some kind of death that you get to skip somehow. Well, the second death is eternal punishment in Revelation. So the first resurrection saves us from sin and death and makes us alive. And then that sets us up with the second resurrection, which is 
at the end of time. And if we participate in that, we don't participate in the second death, which is this horrible thing described in Revelation 22, talked about with the lake of fire, we get there, we get there. So that's what that's all about. That's what that means. Question? What about... I think that's I think that you know that's the church's understanding, yeah, that they that they uh, that, that that they will be resurrected. Now, the the question for um, for us in light of how the church on earth interacts with the church that's gone before is the degree to which, in their pre-resurrected state in paradise with Christ, they have some enduring existence. How they exist, pray, we don't know, there's a lot that's not known, but it would be whatever whatever relationship we have is is them also in 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 a pre-resurrected state, that we're all going to be raised together, but that's, that's, and I think that's, I mean, generally speaking, you have, um, uh, relics of the saints precisely because they still had remains that could be saved. If they had been resurrected, there would be not, there would, would have been nothing there. And that was the one thing about Mary. There is no grave for her and all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to get into that, but it, it's, a, it's a tradition of the church that, um, so, um, yeah, that's how we look at that. And that's where the idea of, it, 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 and it's also why it's important, because this is something I think that undermines the Christian hope, is that, the idea that, that there's not a telos or a, a completion point of the work of Christ that includes the resurrection, the, res- the restoration of the fullness of life in the body, the restoration of the whole creation, as St. Paul uh, alludes to in Romans chapter 8. Uh, the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption to enjoy the glorious liberty of the children of God. That's what we're looking for. Everything before then is in some sense intermediate. And while it's, you know, he's, even John will say, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, because, but mainly because if they're faithful unto death, they've sealed their place in this second resurrection. And so that's that's the blessedness is is dying in the Lord. You, you've completed the St. Paul was that finished the race, you know, completed, for henceforth it's laid up for me. That's the, the real focus of the Christian life. Yeah. Goes to be with him somehow, and in and and awaiting the completion, the completion of life. And and a couple of closing notes, and then we'll, we'll finish our study today. So, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I just warned you we got into this, this. There's just so much in every 
Some of the verses will go a little bit quicker, but there's a lot, there's a lot of illusion. Um, to him who loved us, and New King James has washed, the other versions have freed us from our sins in his own blood. But however you, um, whether it's freed or washed, which can mean the same thing, you want to say that clearly the mention of the firstborn and the blood is clearly meant to hearken to the, to the Exodus imagery that we're freed from sins by his blood, by the blood of the lamb that sets us free from sin. So he clearly is meaning to sacrificially free us from uh, the, the captivity to sin that we have. That's what we have for today. We'll pick up with, uh, um, with a kingdom of priests or kings and priests next time. Do look at the verse I sent you there, Exodus, um, and it'll give us a chance to talk a little bit about some of the priestly imagery. There's some verses from Peter that we'll look at and so forth. All right, let us pray. The Lord bless us and keep us. Lord, make his face to shine upon us, be gracious unto us. The Lord, lift up his countenance upon us, give us peace this day and forever. Thank you all. The Cheryl, look at Cheryl biolocating there. She was here, now she's there. She's attained to blessedness in her body. Look at that. Mimi, you can see Elizabeth, Ed, Rhonda, Faye. Is that good to have you here with us? Yeah, everywhere. You can get the what? Where I'll be erased by the whole restoration. But I don't get the problem that I'm sorry. I did get Well, that's kind of cool too. Do you have a Bible that you use? Yeah, okay. I already read it. It's a book that needs to be read again and again. Yeah, there's lots of illusions and references. Well, Revelation, I don't think, predicts something, you know, like like prophecy teachers. It, it talks about, in, in symbolic terms, the reality of the Christian hope. And, uh, but it, and it points forward to the resurrection we're just talking about. So, somehow the creation that God made in the beginning has been um, disordered by sin will be will be completed and brought back to harmony with God and we will live in it without that disorder. Yeah, I guess there was a